Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the opportunity to talk about something that I'm sure is very near and dear to many of your hearts. What does osteoarthritis pain feel like? Now, obviously, everybody is different. And as it relates to today's topic, osteoarthritis symptoms vary incredibly from person to person. For example, some people experience intermittent pain during physical activity, whereas others experience constant pain and others a mix. The pain that I tend to get in my right knee from my osteoarthritis is usually episodic. And for the most part, I've been fortunate that I've identified triggers that might lead to exacerbations of pain or that intermittent pain that we've described. And so hence, I can avoid much of that from occurring. Now, in addition to episodic versus constant, there are lots of other descriptors used for osteoarthritis pain, such as the character of the pain, its distribution or location, its severity, and obviously, as we'll focus on a little bit today, its frequency in particular, whether that is intermittent or constant. And it's new research into these patterns of pain that's shown that different pain patterns experienced by people with osteoarthritis can lead to different clinical outcomes. Now, if we could identify why some people have more constant or more severe pain, 
or identify the triggers for episodic pain, it might provide insights on how we can better intervene. And this promising area of research can help to enhance not only a person's prognosis and trajectory of their disease, but also hopefully provide more targeted treatment, even if that's just changing behavior or changing activity that might be triggering symptoms. And in today's episode of the Joint Action Podcast, we're joined by Lisa Kaleso. Now, Lisa is a licensed physiotherapist and an assistant professor in the School of Rehabilitation Science at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. Her extensive academic background in physical therapy and clinical epidemiology have shaped her research interests in common age-related musculoskeletal problems, such as osteoarthritis. Her most recent studies focus on improving treatment and outcomes for people with musculoskeletal disorders, such as osteoarthritis and chronic low back pain. Lisa's interested in understanding the mechanisms and consequences of pain as they relate to disability, mobility, participation, and healthy aging. Hello, Lisa, and welcome to the show. Hello, David. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a, it's a great pleasure. I've been a huge fan of your work for a long while, and it's great to have a chance to, to catch up with you and to talk a little bit more about what you do. I guess in the first instance, just to allow both myself and the listeners to get to know you a little bit better, just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your background and what a typical day looks like. Sure. Well, I like to think that I had kind of a bit of an atypical road to where I am now in that I, I was a physiotherapist practicing for many years. And I didn't start my graduate work till about, I think it was about 13 years after I had been working clinically. And then um, it took me a while to, to do my PhD because I didn't think that was the route that I wanted to go, but eventually got there. So yeah, I worked actually about 25 years clinically in total before I became a full-time researcher and academic. So now I spend most of my days doing research. I used to teach a little bit more, but thanks to a career award, I'm, I'm doing that a little bit less right now and for the next few years, and I get to focus on research more, which is great. Uh, but I do still spend a bit of my time teaching entry-level physiotherapy students but the majority is on research and supervising graduate students. And then I also have some administrative duties, which I'm really actually quite involved in making sure that the curriculum that we offer in our program meets national standards and, and stays at a high level. So that takes up a bit of my time as well. Sounds like you have an incredibly full plate. Um, and I'm, I'm very much of the adage that all good things take time. So I'm sure all of those years working as a clinician, hopefully have flavored a little bit of what you do. Do you, do you think it has changed your perspectives in any way? Does it color what you do? I think it's been just incredibly informative because, you know, I often think back to my days as a clinician, right? And those, those interactions, those conversations I would have with patients. And I think it really helps keep my research, I hope, clinically relevant. And at the end of the day, that's always my goal is that even though I know some of my studies aren't immediately translatable for clinicians, I'm always working towards that goal that if it takes me five or six studies on a certain line of inquiry to get to that point, then that's what I want to do. But I think that's really kind of the most important thing when we're doing clinical research is that 
it benefit those healthcare workers that are on the ground. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. And for the patient population that you previously looked after as, as a practicing physiotherapist, why did you choose osteoarthritis in terms of your career research goal? Was there something that you saw, something you did? What was it? It was actually a bit of a fluke, I'd say. So I became increasingly interested in pain during my PhD because my PhD was not at all to do with pain. And then I decided that I really wanted to focus my postdoctoral studies uh, in that area. But instead, I was going to focus on low back pain. And that's where I started out. But uh, I was postdocing with, you may know, Aileen, Aileen Davis. Yeah. And so she's obviously a big knee osteoarthritis person. And so she was slowly like, hey, look at this, you know, and, and teaching me about all the interesting things about knee OA. And, and then she uh, put me in touch with Tahina Neoji and said, hey, if you're interested in pain, you've got to collaborate with Tina. And so that was born and and then off we went. And I just really became fascinated with how complex the pain in this population is. And, and we know, you know, it's not well managed and there's no cure for it. So that really drives me in trying to move things along. Oh, well, it sounds like a very tremendous journey that you've been through. And it sounds like Eileen's been a fantastic influence as well. So applause to her for, uh, for driving you in this direction and to Tahina as well. Yeah, I'm very grateful. Now, when you're not doing your day job, what do you like to do? I love to hike and I love to be outdoors. I'm fortunate that really just very close to me, like a couple of blocks, we have access to trails in the forest. So I, I like to to get out there as much as possible or take weekend trips to just set out and hike for the whole weekend kind of thing. I find it very, very good for the soul. Tremendously good and cannot agree with you more. I wish I could do the same and walk out of my back door onto a trail somewhere, but living in the city, it's not quite the same, but I, I am a little bit spoiled where we live. We, we do tend to walk most days, but I don't think it's necessarily in the, the wonderful forest that you're probably walking through. No, but you you have a beach, I'm sure, very close at hand. Yeah, I'm spoiled. I'm, yeah. I'm not complaining. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not complaining. <laughs> now, Lisa, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? I would say I'm very passionate about my work and that I think I'm a caring and pretty honest person. And then I would say that I am, well, as I just said, I love being outdoors and I love good food. <laughs> Sounds tremendous. Sounds tremendous. All wonderful qualities. Now, obviously, the main content of today is talking about osteoarthritis pain and, and what patients and people who have osteoarthritis experience from their disease. But I just want to start by, I guess, framing the content a little bit and ask you to tell us what a phenotype is and what particularly is a pain phenotype? Yeah, so you know, phenotyping has become a really hot topic in osteoarthritis in the last few years, as you know, and, and I would say even generally more broadly in musculoskeletal pain conditions. And I think the easiest way for people to think about it, it is that it's kind of the interaction of our genes with our environment. And that ends up including a bunch of different areas like our physical form, our physiology, our biochemistry, 
our behavior, all, all these kinds of things. So there's kind of all these little subheadings underneath that. But broadly, if you think of it, I think as, as that interaction, then that's kind of a simple way for people to imagine it. Pain phenotypes, I would say a little bit different and that there's only been kind of one group that I know of that has kind of tried to define that. So that's a, it's a research group called Impact. And they kind of took, you know, the kind of basic definition of a phenotype and extended it to say that it includes patient self-reported characteristics, patient reported symptoms, and a patient's verbal or behavioral responses to standardized provocation when they're referring to particular tests that we do to, to test a person's sensitivity to pain. So that's kind of how I would define a pain phenotype. Oh, it's a very useful framework, particularly for the remainder of the conversation. Now, everybody's different who has and experiences osteoarthritis, but there are lots of different descriptors that are used for that pain. In the work that you and others have done, what are the different types of pain that are experienced by people with knee osteoarthritis? Yeah, so a few years ago, it was actually Dr. Dr. Jillian Hawker out of the University of Toronto here, conducted many focus groups with people with knee osteoarthritis and asked them to describe their experiences. And from that study, they were able to say that people described intermittent pain, constant pain, or a mix of the two. And they further related those descriptors to where they were in the disease process. So people who had intermittent pain tended to be more early on, and they described it as being sharp. Uh, and it kind of came and went and was often related to activities that put some type of stress on their knee. So maybe somebody goes out for a jog or Maybe they've spent the afternoon gardening and pushing on a shovel, you know, loading the knee, and that might bring that on. And then they described that as they kind of moved along and the disease got a little bit worse, the pain would become more constant. And that they described as being more achy and dull in nature and wasn't necessarily related to any particular activities. It was just more there all the time. And then as a further progression, that intermittent pain would come back and kind of overlay on top of the constant pain. But now it would be a little bit different in that it would still be sharp, but it would be quite intense and it would be very unpredictable. So it wouldn't be related to loading the knee. It could just show up randomly. And people describe that as being a bit distressing because they couldn't necessarily relate it to their activities or what they had done. Those were kind of the three groupings and according to disease progression that, that came of that. And they were able to create a questionnaire to quantify that, uh, those experiences. And so we did some studies that have used that questionnaire and assessed these different pain patterns in different ways. That's tremendous. Just to dig into that a little bit further, from memory, some of Gillian's earlier work there focused on what was more distressing for the people who were experiencing pain. And again, I think the intermittent experience was the one that was more distressing than the constant background pain. Is my recollection right? I think so. And 
I think even in the earlier stages, my interpretation of that would be that when you have intermittent pain, and even if you can kind of predict when you're going to feel it, because you don't have it all the time, I feel like when you feel it, you feel it more intensely versus when you have pain that's there all the time, particularly if it becomes kind of like a background pain, I think you habituate to it. And so it doesn't feel as intense necessarily. And maybe it goes up a little bit and goes down a little bit, but it's kind of there all the time. And so you're used to it. But it, I think it's more alarming to us, like I said, even if we can predict it to suddenly have pain just arrive and be sharp. And even if it goes away quickly, it's still a bit of a shock to our, our nervous systems that way. Yeah. And for those listeners who want to learn a little bit more about episodic pain or pain flares and the type of pain that Lisa's describing there, just listen to Martin Thomas talk about some of those flares that he's described in, in his particular podcast. Now, I guess just one other qualification too for the comments that you made about what the triggers might be for that episodic pain. Um, this is really about, I guess, trying not to let people think that activity is a bad thing, but it's oftentimes the unusual activity that a person may not necessarily be otherwise accustomed to and load and activity would otherwise typically be a good thing. Wouldn't it, Lisa? Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for raising that point. Yeah. So when I'm talking about activities, I'm talking about things that you don't normally do in your normal day-to-day versus, again, that's another part of the constant pain is that it is aggravated by simple activities such as walking, whereas it takes a little bit more from that for the intermittent pain. So more, more loading, more stress on the joint than you would normally do in your regular course. But again, really important to emphasize that even though there may be some pain associated with some of these things, you're not necessarily damaging your joint. And in fact, it's healthy to expose the joint to this type of loading. It helps with the nutrition of the joint. And so I know that's a bit confusing for people to think, well, why am I getting pain if it's actually healthy for my joint? And that's part of what we're trying to understand and figure out. But Yes, that's, it's a really important point for people to hear. Yeah. Now, you've spoken a little bit about disease duration as it relates to episodic versus more constant pain. But what are the proposed mechanisms that underlie these different pain patterns other than uh, disease severity? Yeah, so we have looked at what we call, you just referred correctly to pain mechanisms. And that kind of refers to people's nervous systems and how sensitive they are to pain and painful stimuli, as well as their ability to modulate pain. And so we have a number of tests that we do in the lab that test the sensitivity of the nervous system. And that gives us an idea of, you know, we are able to compare people, how sensitive their nervous system is. And so we see that people who a greater sensitivity to pain tend to have higher pain intensity. And in terms of the pain patterns, they're more likely to have that mix of constant and intermittent pain compared to having only intermittent pain or no pain. So the more sensitive you are, not only the more kind of intense pain you'll have, but you'll have it more consistently as well. And that's 
makes sense to us because the sensitivity in our nervous system, it actually makes it, it's like our, our thresholds, our tolerance for these different stimuli that might not normally cause us pain are actually lower. And in, in this circumstances end up leading to pain when maybe they shouldn't be. And so there's that kind of, you know, lower threshold or flexibility, if you will, in the, in the system that, that can lead to that. Yeah. So it's a wonderful explanation. And, and I guess just to expand on that a little bit further. So you've done tests in the laboratory that, that look at pain thresholds related to pressure. So when you're actually pressing on uh, individual parts of the body and that increased sensitivity that you're describing is not only local to where the pathology in the joint may be, but also somewhat distant to that. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. And that's what I was referring to when I think I said a moment ago about the peripheral and the central nervous system, but so we have a part of our nervous system is more in our limbs and our peripheral joints, if you will. And then our central nervous system, which is more in our spinal cord and our brain. And so what we do is say in the case of, of the knee, we test locally at the knee to get an idea of how the peripheral nervous system might be responding and then we'll test somewhere farther away. Typically it's in the forearm or something like that uh, to get an idea of how a part that's remote and is connected via the central nervous system might be responding. And so that tells us then that the central nervous system would be involved as opposed to just the peripheral. Superb. Now, obviously we've spoken about sensitization. We've spoken about disease duration are there other factors that might predispose someone to have more constant pain? Yes. Yeah, so just coming back to this mechanism piece again, the other piece that we looked at was people's ability to modulate pain. And this was a really surprising finding because we had kind of thought, well, if people are modulating their pain, well, they should have less pain. That seems to make sense. But in fact, we found that people who had more constant and intermittent pain actually were the ones who were modulating the most efficiently. And that really kind of confused us at first. We thought, well, that's really opposite to what we were expecting. But, you know, we were thinking about it and we thought, well, I guess it makes sense if someone is in constant pain all the time this system that we have that's built in to help modulate our pain experience would be in fully engaged because of the fact that we are experiencing pain very consistently. So, so that's kind of how we interpreted that, that the more kind of constantly we are in pain, that that would demand our modulating system to be turned on and to be working very hard. Superb, superb. Now, what role, if any, does disease or structural severity play in what you're talking about? Yeah. So that was another thing that we looked at. And, and I know this is always a kind of a controversial point because we always say, you know, pain is not related to your x-ray finding necessarily. And we have lots of studies to support that, that it, they're not very strongly correlated, but what's important to, I think, realize here, the difference is that most of those studies have been talking about pain intensity. And I'll, and I'll talk about that as well in a second, but 
And pain intensity is very different than talking about whether a pain is intermittent or constant. So these are more qualities or descriptors of the pain beyond intensity. And they give a different, you know, flavor to it, so to speak. So what we found, again, was that very much how the people had described, you know, that when if I have intermittent pain, I've got early disease and and then constant a bit further on and constant and intermittent is, is more end stage. We saw this um, when we compared x-ray findings with this uh, reports on this questionnaire that had been developed. And we found that basically people with more severe change on their x-ray were more likely to report having constant and mixed pain compared to people who had intermittent pain. And th- those people had the much lower severity on their x-ray. So that was a really uh, neat finding that kind of confirmed what these hundreds of people with NEOA had told us in the focus groups. So, you know, then we had data to support that, which was great. Well, there are other factors that we should mention in this conversation as well, Lisa, you know, whether it be depression, socioeconomic circumstances, other factors. Yeah, so we haven't looked at those specifically in terms of these pain patterns that we're talking about, that would certainly be something to to consider. I think it's a really good point and that pain is a very complex construct and it has multiple aspects to it. So it's not just about disease severity and pain intensity. There's lots of things that shape the pain experience for people. Um, As you mentioned, things like depression or our mental health our overall physical health, you know, if we have other chronic conditions that we're dealing with, that could impact it, how much social support we have, you know, there's people that live alone, or who are particularly lonely, you know, might have more pain, and stressors in our life, like socioeconomic status, or trauma, things like this, they've all been shown to have a direct impact on an individual's experience of pain. So it's really important to take those things into context, each and every patient that sits in front of you, it's not just a number of zero to 10 uh, on a, you know, a numeric rating scale and looking at the x-ray and, and trying to interpret why that person might be having the amount of pain that they are. There's lots, lots more to it. Yeah, I think that's really, really helpful because I think as clinicians, we often have a tendency just to to measure that zero to 10 scale, but not necessarily to dig into the reasons why. Um, and I think for, for people out there who have osteoarthritis, there's lots of different reasons why you may be experiencing more or less pain than a person who may have a similar duration of disease and similar x-ray changes and, and other factors. Now, a recent study that you did, Lisa, you were doing this in uh, people presenting to an orthopedic clinic. And I think it was a consecutive series of people who are presenting for orthopedic consultation. Do you want to describe, I mean, you've, you've already started, but do you want to describe a little bit more about what the tests were that you did and what you found? Yeah. So as you said, we're recruiting people who are having their first consultation with an orthopedic surgeon. And we did a, a number of tests. We had several questionnaires that we used and they covered a number of constructs that are related to the pain experience. So things like depression, something called pain catastrophizing, the presence of neuropathic pain, 
looked at fatigue, sleep quality, somatization. We looked at uh, a person's pain intensity as well as their pain variability over the course of a week. And then we did a bunch of laboratory tests like we were just talking about to assess the sensitivity of people's nervous systems. And so we had a number of different variables and we ran a statistical model that basically puts people who are similar into different groups. And that allows us to create profiles of people with the goal of providing more personalized treatment, right? either more personalized prognosis of how this person is going to do down the road or more personalized treatment in the short term. You know, so someone who has a much lower pain burden will require less intervention than someone obviously who has a much greater pain burden. And that's kind of the premise behind it. And so we found three groups and those groups were largely defined by the self-report questionnaires that we use. In fact, all of them with the exception of two categories, uh, which was, I believe, pain variability and the uh, depressive symptoms were all significantly different across the three groups. And then interestingly, in terms of the laboratory tests, uh, again, uh, we, you know, we did a number of them and we only found that one of them was different. And that one's called temporal summation. And it's an indicator of the sensitivity of the central nervous system. I think because of the, I'll say the reliance of these groups on the questionnaires in their kind of defining qualities, I think that's that's a promising finding in their clinical utility uh, down the road. But as I said, you know, this is, this is kind of a line of research. Uh, and I know you're well familiar with this, that it takes multiple steps before we can actually get to a point where we can implement these phenotypes into clinical practice. So, so we're still a little bit away from that, but, but that's the end goal. Um, and yeah, the other things I'll just mention is that we looked at characteristics of the groups uh, and we saw that women and people who were a little bit younger, as well as people who had lower levels of self-efficacy and optimism were more likely to be in the more severe group. And then we looked at the relationship of these groups to some outcomes, one of them being healthcare visits in the past two years. And we found that the most severe group had a 240% increase in health visits compared to the mild group. So that was really interesting. And we used actual healthcare data from our provincial data registry to do that analysis. So it wasn't using, you know, self-report by the patient about how many times they saw their doctor or something. It was actually using like billing data. So as you say, I think reassuring that a lot of the ability to classify those people into the different groups was obtained from questionnaires because I think a lot of the expertise that you talk about, whether it be looking at pain sensitization centrally or peripherally or, or modulation, is, I wouldn't say constrained to highly proficient labs, but it, it is a lot more difficult than, than getting questionnaire data. What do you think was different about the findings from this study to the previous findings that you'd had, for example, in the most observational study and how might you explain those differences? Yeah, so we did a similar study, as you know, um, but we called those, that study, we referred to, to those people as pain susceptibility phenotypes. 
And what we mean by that is that we initially took a group of people who were essentially pain-free. And even though they might've had signs of arthritis on their x-ray, they didn't have a lot of pain. And then we looked at the relationship of the groups that we came up with to um, who developed persistent pain two years later. So first of all, a big difference is that these people were pain-free and the group that I just studied, you know, they were coming to see an orthopedic surgeon and therefore had pain probably pretty uh, regularly. And the groups that we found in the pain susceptibility study I would say we're almost completely opposite to what uh, we just found in that they were dominated by the lab tests. And we really found almost no differences at all in the questionnaires that we used. And one of the groups that kind of was shown to have the most sensitivity in their nervous system, they were twice as likely to develop persistent pain two years down the road. So that really showed us that this sensitivity in our nervous system is an important mechanism even before we're experiencing a lot of pain on a day-to-day basis that can lead to the development of persistent pain down the road for us. So it's a a really good target for us to be working with to, to help improve pain management for people. Tremendous explanation. Now, what we'll do is we'll include some of the links to Lisa's references in the show notes for people who want to dig a little bit further into that. But are there other resources that you'd like to point people towards, Lisa, or or any other comments around the topic that you'd like to make? I think just as far as resources are concerned, I always think that people's national arthritis associations are really great resources. Here in Canada, we have the Arthritis Society, and I know they just have a tremendous amount of things for patients. I also really like the group at uh, UNC in the States and the uh, Osteoarthritis Action Alliance. And I know that they've just come out with some new OA, I think it's OA care tool, I think it's called. I'd have to double check. But they, they're always kind of updating and, and their resources and trying to improve on things. So I, uh, I highly recommend them. It's fantastic. All right. Now we're going to get into the rapid fire round, if that's okay. And you're still comfortable and. Okay. I'm scared. <laughs> Don't be <Yeah>. scared. <laughs> this, is a, this is a less formidable audience than most conferences you go to. The intent here is I'm just going to throw something at you. You just come back to me with a quick response. Favorite book. That would be A Fine Balance by Rohinton Mystery. Haven't heard of that one. Have to look it up. Favorite movie? Princess Bride, hands down. Okay. (laughs) Dog or a cat person? Dog, I have two. I'm there with you. Don't have two, but I'd like to have two. Favorite quote? I don't know that I have one, um, but generally I would say anything by Pema Chodron, who is a Buddhist nun. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah, and she does. She has several books that I've read and, and really enjoy her. Yeah. What's your favorite food? That would be my mom's lasagna. Lasagna is a great one, isn't it? Now, do you have a bad habit? I would say this, this goes back to the dogs. I watch a lot of funny videos about French bulldogs because I have two and I find them extremely funny. So I, I probably spend too much time watching, <laughs> watching that. And I should be working. (laughs) 
Where would you next like to go on holiday? COVID and other disasters aside. I would say maybe Costa Rica or Spain. I haven't been to either of those places. And... Sounds superb. Now, what superpower would you have if you could have any? Oh, that's easy. I, I would like to fly. And that's related to the fact that if I had to come back in as, as an animal, I would want to be a bird. <laughs> I hate heights. So you're much braver than I am. Uh, if you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Ooh, I think probably someone like Martin Luther King or Gandhi, people who really were, you know, change makers in their time. Yeah. And if you could have all the money in the world and it were not an issue, what would you do? I would travel and I would travel probably just around the world, spending different time with different nonprofits trying to do good. You're an inspirational person, Lisa. So because I haven't managed time particularly well, I'm going to skip through some of the remaining questions and just focus on a couple. But why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Well, I think, as I said earlier, you know, we don't have a cure for pain in the OA, or I mean, OA in general. And I actually, I live with an arthritic knee, so I, I know the impact that it has. But I see the impact that it has on people's lives. And when we have pain in our, our knees in particular, we don't want to move. And when we don't move, that leads to other health problems. And, and it can um, really complicate things as we're getting older. And so I think, you know, if we can focus on trying to find a cure for the pain and improving pain management for people, then downstream, that's going to help them in so many other ways to remain active and healthy as they age and, and enjoy life. It's uh, much needed and a tremendous motivation. I hope you continue to do what you're doing. And if there's one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people who have osteoarthritis, what would it be? I would say, you know, to remember, like, as we were talking, that pain is very complex complex thing and that it has, you know, emotional, cognitive and physical parts to it, social parts to it. We know we are all preaching about the importance of exercise and staying active, keeping your joints strong, but it's not, I'd say it's not so simple as just that. If you think of it in the ter in terms of pain, the reason that all of that is so important is because exercise helps provide so many of those things. It helps improve our mental, our physical health. It, it gives us social connection. You know, it, it gives us so many things and all of those things can help improve our pain. That's the thing I guess I want people to understand is stay active no matter what stage of the disease you're in and realize that doing so kind of ticks all the boxes on trying to figure out that complex pain piece. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful proactive way to end and hopefully a really good message for everybody who's listening out there and uh, getting proactive about your health, um, particularly as it relates to ex exercise, but um, you know, lots of other things that people can do as well. Now, Lisa, Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us, sharing those really important insights and for the wonderful work that you do. It's been a privilege to have a chat to you. It's been my pleasure, David. Thanks so much for the invitation. Now, I'm hoping you found the content of today's show helpful. 
and in particular, provided you with a better understanding of the different types of pain characteristically experienced by people with knee osteoarthritis. Now, again, just to reinforce, everybody is different and your experience of pain may be very different from the majority. But in typical circumstances, early in disease, the pain is characteristically intermittent. So self-limited, usually lasting for a few days, often exacerbated by an activity or unusual behavior that a person oftentimes is unaccustomed to doing. In the latter stages of disease, pain may become more constant with fluctuations on that background. Now, as Lisa's expanded on today, there are lots of different reasons why that pain may become more constant, including factors around the duration of which you've experienced these symptoms for, the severity of the disease, in addition to features that oftentimes are measured in the laboratory, including aspects related to your sensitivity, both peripherally and centrally, and how you modulate that experience of pain all play a role in whether your pain experience is more constant or intermittent or episodic. Now, as mentioned, everybody's experience is a little bit different, but hopefully as also Lisa expanded on today, insights gained from this research may provide information that we can better intervene on and prevent people from having a trajectory that leads to constant background pain. There's lots of factors that are probably within your control in influencing your pain experience, including your moods, your weight, and other factors that I would encourage you to learn more about and hopefully intervene on as well. Again, hopefully you found the content helpful and informative. I appreciate the time that you've spent listening and supporting the show. Thank you very much for the privilege and opportunity to speak with you. And between now and when next you hear from me, please do take care of yourself. And if you have the opportunity, someone else as well. Thanks and goodbye. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.